This is Minor Revisions, a podcast from the editors of the journal Politics and Space, published by SAGE. I'm Eugene McCann, Managing Editor and Professor of Geography at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish and Tsleil-Waututh nations. Each episode of Minor Revisions features the authors of a published article unpacking their publication and revealing some secrets behind it. They tell stories of how their article came about, how they collaborated with editors and reviewers to write it, what decisions they made about literature to draw upon, and what challenges they overcame along the way. The podcast provides personal insight into the often mysterious process of publishing academic articles. We hope it will help you publish your research with only minor revisions. In this episode, Pavitra Vasudevan Assistant Professor of African and African Diaspora Studies at the University of Texas at Austin, and Sarah Smith, Professor of Geography at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, tell the inside story of researching, writing, and publishing their article, The Domestic Geopolitics of Racial Capitalism. The article was published in 2020 in Volume 38, Issues 7 and 8, of politics and space. It's part of a theme issue on feminist political geographies, which was guest edited by Caroline Faria, Vanessa Massaro, and Jill Williams. The article is currently free to access on the journal's website via the link in the episode show notes. The article analyzes the racialized character of toxic poisoning in two places in the United States, Baden, North Carolina, and Flint, Michigan. The authors draw on the work of black feminist scholars to develop the concept of of what they call domestic geopolitics. In doing so, they explore how people suffering from toxic environments struggle to survive and to make a better world. Here, domestic geopolitics has a double meaning. It speaks to how geopolitics is enacted internally within national boundaries, as well as out there beyond national boundaries. The concept also connotes the domestic labour of maintaining life, home and community. The authors argue that black survival struggles in Baden and Flint exemplify a domestic geopolitics of struggle against racial capitalism. In this episode, We hear how their paper emerged from their parallel research interests, how they developed the concept of domestic geopolitics, how their approach to and feelings about writing have grown over the years, and their experience of working with editors and reviewers. My name is Pavitra Vastadevan. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Texas at Austin in African and African Diaspora Studies and Women's and Gender Studies. I do work on environmental racism in the U.S., which is to say I'm interested in understanding how racism underlies environmental devastation. I am interested in how we can produce knowledge and collaboration with those who are most affected and particularly the kinds of knowledges that come out of collective struggle. So I do collaborative research with communities living in toxic environments. And I see my role as a storyteller. Um, So I'm interested in bridging scholarly theoretical knowledge with people's lived experience and political insights. As a storyteller, I'm interested in how the writing that we produce can help us to imagine and bring other roles into being. Um, So I always think about that when I'm writing the kinds of language that can evoke alternative visions. And I'll hand it off to Sarah. Sarah is my, was my PhD advisor and is a dear friend. And we, as you'll hear today, we've been collaborating for a very long time. Hi, I'm Sarah Smith and I'm a professor of geography at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. I'm a feminist political geographer and I'm very interested in territory and the future and how our ideas about the future shape how we are in relation to one another, how they shape intimacy, geopolitics, 
and so forth. So I've looked at geopolitics, but through the lens of love, friendship, birth, and other kinds of intimate parts of our lives. And I've worked a lot in Ladakh up in North India, but I also work with Mabel Gergen with college students from the Himalaya who are studying out in other parts of India and the world, talking to them about that experience. And I also look at sort of broadly right-wing nationalism, racism, anti-Blackness, and so forth in the U.S. context and globally. So in this paper, we're interested in understanding the kind of work that's required for racialized communities to survive. Um, Racial capitalism really erodes the conditions that sustain life for a lot of people. And we're thinking about how the work that is needed to take care of your home, of your families, and of your communities is a kind of labor that gets written out when we think about what politics are. So in the paper, we argue that this work is a form of geopolitical praxis, a kind of everyday warfare against imperial capitalism's onslaught. Um, And in particular, we coined this term domestic geopolitics. So domestic here takes on two different meanings that are interrelated. It's domestic because of the form of violence that it's a kind of internal colonialism that communities face that's imposed by the state. And domestic in the second sense speaks to the work of uh, home and community and family. So that work of survival as a kind of geopolitical labor. And in particular, we are in conversation here with work in Black geographies, which talks about how Black suffering is not merely a kind of catalog of death, but really about a struggle against death. Um, And so we wanted to think about what is the work that people do to survive and how can we both amplify the work that's being done and really draw attention to it, not only for us as scholars, but for practitioners um, who are interested in transformation to recognize and value that kind of work and to recognize that this is where alternative arrangements of care and different imaginaries for the future are made possible. Maybe I should also talk about Baden and Flint now a little bit. Would that make sense? I think so. Yeah. So we look at two case studies. One is Baden, North Carolina, which is a company town um, where aluminum smelting um, was done for about close to 100 years. And the second case study is Flint, Michigan, where there's widespread lead contamination because of government neglect. Um, And we're looking at, in Baden and Flint, how these two cases are sites that we may not think of as connected to global imperialism, and yet they are really central in the one case around aluminum production and in the other case around the auto industry. They're sites that are both central to how imperialism and how values accumulated, and yet the neglect and the abandonment of what Ruth Wilson Gilmore calls organized abandonment creates the conditions that make it um, really difficult and near impossible for people to be healthy and to survive. And so what is the work that people have to do to survive in these conditions? I keep saying the same word, Sarah. What am I missing? That oh, the la- like a- labor piece, the labor piece. So we, in formulating domestic geopolitics, um, we identify three kinds of work that are done. The first is the labor of keeping wake. And this is picking up from Christina Sharp's work in the wake on the kind of work that uh, is required to attend to death and to those who have died as a way and as a practice of promoting life. The second is labor of tactical expertise and the work that um, communities have to do to have to translate the impacts and the evidence of injustice into forms that are legible to the state in order to claim compensation, remediation, really any kind of political gains. And the third form is the labor of revolutionary mothering, um, which the language comes from Alexis Pauline Gums. And it's thinking about the work of survival as a communal effort, as a kind of building kinship in order to build futurity. Sarah, do you want to start with feminist geopolitics and I'll kind of pick up from that? Or? Sure. Yeah, I think so. We were talking a little bit about like, how did this paper happen? And We talked about how when Pavi first came to UNC, I was teaching this kind of embodied territory class and reading a lot of geopolitics and feminist geopolitics. 
But then as our, and our conversation sort of started developing from there, and then we started thinking about the role of the future and how it shapes geopolitics, the way that geopolitics is always sort of about territory and the future in some, in some way. So I think that one of the ways this conversation kind of took shape is by sh thinking about the ways that folks in say black feminism or other folks who are trying to understand empire like Lisa Lowe, like how, how do we think through their understanding of territory and space and intimacy and kind of bring some of that into like a feminist geopolitics. So I love feminist geopolitics, but I also felt like there were so many, so many things that I couldn't account for or that we could kind of like take it in different directions. So I think that's one of the motivations. Pavi, do you want to pick up from there? Sure. I think, you know, one of my interests in this piece was thinking about how um, these sites that are, you know, in the environmental justice literature called sacrifice zones, these sort of sites of industrial ruination are really a part of how empire works. And often we think of empire in the sort of global or a sense of like war abroad um, but war abroad is really linked to structural violence at home. And I think that is a very intuitive understanding for people who are organizing. We saw that conversation happening, for example, when um, between organizers in Ferguson, Missouri, around police killings and um, activists in Palestine. And so there's always this creation of an internal enemy or an internal other that's also happening alongside um, you know, global colonization. Um, so that was one of the impulses, I think, to do this work. And one of the conversations that I think where feminist geographers have actually done really amazing work at undermining geopolitics as something that doesn't just happen at the scale of the state, but something that's happening, you know, at the scale of families, at the scale of local quote unquote communities that seem disconnected from the imperial project. So that was, you know, that's one set of literatures that we draw on is feminist political geography. But as Sarah was saying, some of those analyses don't necessarily center the insights that come from, for example, um, Black radical studies, um, Indigenous studies around how settler colonialism works. And so the, the geopolitical praxis, the labors that we identify are the kinds of work that we see communities doing. And we saw that resonance, particularly as um, there's more news coming out about Flint. And Sarah saw a lot of the resonances with the work I was doing in Baden. And that's one of the ways that this paper came about. Yeah, do you want to talk about like our earlier collaborations? That kind of that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So I think that the first thing we did together, actually, I'll I guess I'll just preface that by saying like I feel like I'm always in conversation with Pavi. Like I work in a certain kind of chaotic way with my graduate students. So Pavi's also written with me and another one of my students, Mabel, we've done stuff together. And actually we have four to five current projects going with Mabel and a bunch of other folks um, in like different iterations of the same group of people. So I feel like we're always in conversation. So we started out this conversation, I feel around 2014, maybe when we started having this idea to do AEG sessions on race, biopolitics, and the future. So then we wanted to think about, this was part of a turn I was making where I had always wanted to think about when I'm in Ladakh and I'm looking at questions of geopolitics, I'm always thinking about white supremacy in the US. It's like, I always see resonance and I always see ways that the whole world has been shaped by empire. And then that plays out on people's bodies and their intimate lives and what they can and can't do with one another and the relationships they can and can't have with one another. So I was always seeing that in the US. And then I started working with Pavi, who was working on environmental justice and anti-Blackness here in the US. And we started thinking through how a vision of the future kind of shapes what happens with regard to racism. So we organized these AEG sessions on race biopolitics in the future. And that was such a nice learning process. And of course, parallel to this, we were looking at the movement for black lives and trying to understand the kind of persistent anti-blackness and white supremacy and how it cuts short people's lives in specific ways and how black women often are leading the movement to change that. So 
I feel now I'm totally lost. I haven't gotten to the writing process question, but so it started with those conversations. And then we were also in a feminist collective, like we're meeting each other in all these spaces. So these conversations about the specific paper are happening in like fleeting moments in these other meetings. And then they're also happening through the writing process. Do you want to take it from there, Pavi? And then when Sarah had kind of brought in Flint into the picture, um, I mean, Flint was in the picture and we were having these conversations about seeing the same things happening. And I'm talking about very specific things. So for example, people having to collect bottled water and distribute it and what, like the that tremendous burden of that work of not knowing whether you're, water, drinking water is safe and having to make those judgment calls, having to put in the money and go get the water and having to decide whether your child can bathe that day or if you have enough water to also use for cooking and these very intimate decisions that are happening and how we rarely recognize that labor. And so we decided that's where this kind of paper came from. I'd written you know, a very early version for this presentation. So I started with Baden and Sarah started bringing in the sections on Flint so that's kind of how we had split up the writing initially. How do we collaborate? I don't know. We go, we, Sarah and I work really well together, I would say, compared to a lot of other people. Um, <laughs> Sarah writes profusely. So it can be challenging to collaborate with someone like that because it's, there's just like a lot of words on the paper. And, <laughs> and normally, you know, with uh, one's advisor, you might feel like hesitant to edit their work or, <laughs> but we had already worked together before. So we actually just always use shared documents and are very comfortable editing each other's work. So I think that's one reason we've been able to collaborate so much is figuring out you know, those things that are unspoken, especially if you're a junior scholar, or you're working with someone senior or you feel like they're senior to you. Um, it can be hard to feel equal in that relationship where you can say, you know, I like this. However, I'm not sure about this section. And so we've been able to, figure that out and we were able to early on. So that's really helped us with the writing process that we could just have a shared document and constantly be adding to it and revising each other's work along the way. And I think that's one of the, for me, that's been a really um, a gift with this collaboration over time is I've just learned so much even about how to write from Sarah at all. I mean, of course she's my advisor, so I learned that, but also in the process of writing together um, I'm now collaborating with one of my grad students um, for the first time. And it's been really amazing that way to, you know, both, I think when you're collaborating with one of your students, it's different because you also have to mentor them in the process because of that power dynamic. So, you know, being able to say to my student, well, actually, this is this step in the process and you should feel free to actually interrupt me or to tell me if I'm on the wrong track. And that's part of collaboration. My advisor was amazing. Uh, my advisor was Sally Marston, and she was such a good mentor to me. And almost everything I do is because of her, but we actually never had the opportunity to write together. And so I didn't have a habit of that at all. I didn't have a habit to write like that at all. I had really just, um, I had only written by myself. And so my experience of writing as like an assistant professor, and especially for all of you junior scholars out there, I was stressed. I thought I was stupid all the time. It was lonely. I was like in my office by myself thinking I'm not good at this job. And then slowly I started to get better and to enjoy it more. And I started to realize that I am writing to learn, not so much because I think I know things, but in the process of writing, I really get to learn and grow as a scholar and as a human being. So for me, uh, after I started writing with Pavi and Mabel, I realized that I learned so much better in community. So now I see writing as part of community building and part of learning for myself and learning for others. And I feel like even the things that I write that are kind of single author, I feel like it's part of a collaboration with the folks that I talk to, with the people who read my work. Like, I think that it's important for faculty to say these kinds of things carefully, because I think sometimes faculty say, oh, I'm on, I'm on an equal level with my students. And that's nonsense because we actually have a lot of power. And I think faculty sometimes pretend that's not the case. And they pretend that it's an egalitarian, non-hierarchical relationship. So I think you have to be cognizant of that while you're working to be in kind of a more community kind of relationship with your students. So that's something that I think about quite a lot. So I think that it came, I think I was really lucky with my first two students, Mabel and Pavi, that we just kind of naturally 
got along and I could encourage them, you know, it's fine to like criticize my work, tell me if I'm wrong, leave those comments in the document. And I tried to make that like to explicitly say that that was okay and to be kind of transparent about that. So I feel like, I feel like it came pretty naturally actually and, and never felt uncomfortable. I just felt excited. I kind of just found it so exciting to start writing together and to realize that it didn't have to be me alone with a computer so many hours of the day. And it made the process of writing. One of the things I, I tell all junior scholars is like, find ways to make the process of writing joyful. Like you don't want to be suffering. Like you're going to suffer because the world is, has a lot of bad things. And you might be like doing research on stuff that's painful. So it's okay to suffer in kind of how you're experiencing and trying to understand that. But then the process of writing should also have like joy and community and it should be something you can work to kind of look forward to it. So that now if I don't get to write, I feel really frustrated. I feel like, no, but I really wanna write. And I feel like part of that is like learning to be in community with people like Polly. What's interesting is Sarah has told us always, um, as grad students, she'd always encouraged us to not just to publish early, but to really share our work in very early stages. And I think that made such a huge difference to thinking of writing as this process, as an actual process that, you know, your ideas change over time. Um, and that happens in large part because of conversations you have with people. So, you know, we started presenting at conferences very early in graduate school and, and even organizing sessions and that kind of thing. And, um, and this paper included, you know, I was testing out this idea on domestic geopolitics before I felt comfortable in some ways. You know, I felt like I was drawing linkages that I couldn't really back up, but I knew enough from, you know, not just from academic work, but from years organizing that there was some resonance to it. And I think because Sarah was, has been so encouraging, it's been possible to take writing in that experimental vein, um, which can be really hard. And I think that's one of the reasons I try to tell my students as well, you know, when you set up this, uh, your, your kind of finished product in your mind as a, a goal, it can really undermine your process of writing um, because you're always looking at people's work as if it comes out in that form. So of course, you know, if you've written a lot, you already know this, but learning to try things out as you're writing, because thinking is, you know, thinking in your mind is very different than thinking on paper. And so really writing is its own form of thinking. It's its own kind of embodied practice that you have to go through to get to what looks like the final version. So I mentioned earlier, I presented a draft of this paper at this feminist geography conference, and I was actually invited um, following the conference by one of the special issue editors for this paper, Caroline Feria, um, along with Jill Williams and Vanessa Massaro to um, submit an article. And at that point, I wasn't actually ready to write the article. And I remember having this conversation with Sarah because I was also, um, had just gotten a job and I was just finishing my dissertation. And so I was like, I don't think I have time for this. So we actually ended up agreeing. I invited Sarah to do this with me at the time, especially I felt like, well, I was trying out something different for me as a junior scholar and, and kind of coining a term. I wasn't confident. It's not just about skill, but I wasn't confident in my analysis, to be honest, that I felt like having Sarah as a collaborator would help me write a stronger and better paper. And I felt like if I was going to take on the responsibility of putting this kind of concept out there, I wanted to do the best I could do with it. Um, so all along the way, you know, the feedback is different at every stage, which is something I try to share with students as well to kind of not see critique as um, necessarily destructive, that sometimes the tone <laughs> that you receive a thing in may not be, you, you can actually separate the tone of critique from the content of it and decide what to do with the content as well. So you don't, of course, have to revise a paper and fully follow your reviewer's comments. Really, it's a it's a conversation in that sense as well, that you can see what they have to say and whether or not it has value for you. Um, and in this case, you know, we had really amazing reviewers, like really fantastic reviewers. They gave us such excellent feedback and the papers in its final version is a much, much stronger paper than the one we started with, thanks to the review process. It was clear in their reviews as well that they wanted this paper to have a broader impact. So they their critique came to us you know, as generosity. And we took it that way. And so even though some of the specific comments we have disagreed with, um, it was a very, it was a very enriching process, the review process. We went through three rounds of review. 
Um, I can share a little bit. I was um, looking at my notes, just what the timeline was. So the conference, the earliest draft was in 2017, in May 2017. That's when I was invited to the paper. We submitted a first incomplete draft to the special issue editors in October. So that's about six months. And they came back to us with feedback and even at that stage, excellent feedback right away. They asked us to clarify the kind of boundaries of the fields we were talking about. They said, you know, you're talking about feminist political geography, but you're also talking about social reproductive labor. It's not clear how these two sort of lineages of feminism really speak to each other. So I'm giving that as an example, but um, really their comments, all their comments were around that vein of how do you clarify the fields that you are drawing on? How do you sort of draw those boundaries and then be able to share what this paper is contributing to each of those fields? The other thing they wanted us to clarify, which sounds now, I mean, they said, why is this geopolitics? So why is this kind of work that you're talking about geopolitics, which I think is a really important question to be able to answer. And in trying to answer that question, our paper became a lot stronger. So that was the first version was to the special issue editors. The next round went to the journal for submission. And that was about um, six months later again. um, And when we got reviews back, they were very extensive. (laughs) They were extensive major revisions, but really helpful ones. They wanted us to situate our case studies in relationship to empire, since that's the argument we were making. And we had kind of offered the case studies, you know, sort of only in terms of what was happening in the communities, the labor part of it. Um, And they suggested that for us to make this argument about domestic geopolitics, that we needed to more clearly situate the cases in relationship to imperialism. What does auto manufacturing, what does aluminum production have to do with empire? And so that really strengthened the case study component, I think, and made us think also about what these two cases do have in common, even though they're such different contexts. And they asked us to clarify our terminology as well. So that was the first round of major revisions. And we had another round of revisions that were I wouldn't say they were minor, but they were asking us to do more, <laughs> more of the same, get clearer about our language. Yeah, especially, you know, words like imperial and colonial and racial, which um, we were, I wouldn't say we were using it loosely, but, you know, all these terms come from very different traditions. So it's, it takes some work, I think, to be clear about what we meant when we used each of the terms. Um, and the paper got accepted with some minor revisions in 2019. So that's about, yeah, two and a half years or so (laughs) from the initial draft. Okay, so I have a couple of strategies that I use for revisions. First is I have all these nerdy systems that I probably is well aware about, and I'll talk about those. But also, I do think that there's a way that you have to manage your just sort of your mental state and your stress levels and all of that. So I do think like, I'm not one of these folks who can wait to read something. So I will read the reviews immediately and I will, sometimes I'll feel upset. Sometimes they're bizarre. Like I've had reviewers like commenting on my marriage, on my personal life, like some very odd reviews or just comments that are not helpful, shall we say, or for folks who are clearly I mean, folks experience like gatekeeping, racism, all kinds of things in the reviews that they get back. So um, sometimes reviewers are in the wrong. So I do think um, sometimes you get to reviews and you just need some time to process them. And then that's where I do use kind of like this wonky systems to kind of like take some of the anxiety out of it. So I have all my students like make a table where you put all the reviewers comments into tables, like one comment per row then you kind of color code them like low-hanging fruit, things I could do when I'm having a bad day and really challenging items that I'm going to have to think about for a month and kind of like the medium of that, like read this article and cite it is like a medium. It's like, you know, you need to read the article, figure out how it applies, but it's not sort of like your theoretical framework is all wrong. (laughs) And then also there's comments where you need to decide this one is just a no. It's just that some comments are not going to, you're gonna lose the original value of the paper. You're gonna, it's gonna mess up your argument or sometimes one reviewer is taking you in one direction, one in another. If you do both of what they say, it's just gonna get muddy and confusing. 
So some of them I just choose at a certain point, these are gonna be the no's. And then from there, I sort of have a plan. So if I'm excited to work on the article, then I might start to think through the, the ones that are challenging for me, that are really pushing me to think about things differently. And sometimes those start out as the comments you're angry about, and then later you're so grateful to that person because you know what, they were right. And then if I'm having a day where I'm feeling frustrated, I can handle kind of like the low hanging fruit type of, of comments. The other thing I think is similar to what we were discussing earlier, that there's a way you have to kind of take the information and give up some of the snarkiness. I also think everybody reviewing, you really have to think about how you write those reviews. You know, the, the person isn't gonna know who you are, but my goodness, like, please write your review as if you're in the room with that person. Like, even if that person needs to be challenged on their white supremacy or why aren't they citing people from the community that they're doing research on, like, sometimes you really have to give people serious feedback when you write a peer review but please do so with generosity and like kind of like kindness because um, we all have had those reviewers comments that we can't get out of our heads. Like I have some really bad, I have some really bad ones. And what I do now is like, I run a workshop, a writing workshop in every seminar that I run. And I always share my worst reviews so that everybody knows that. So like I have one who said I was theoretically thin and incompetent. <laughs> so I remember like putting that up on the, you know, screen to like, so folks like you know it's okay you get these kind of comments like that paper got published in the end you know so sometimes we can just separate out the affective reaction we have to the comment from the information because maybe they said it wrong however i'm still getting information which is that my argument is not coming across so maybe they're a jerk but they're probably also right or i could make it more clear um somebody else might have the same reaction so I try to like separate those things out a little bit and then kind of clump them into those categories so that I can work on, I can make some progress without it being too overwhelming every time I open it up and look at it because I've kind of separated things out a little bit, made it more manageable. I think one of the things for me about writing that has shifted, actually, I would say after this article, even I've been writing much more consistently and really taking it on and I think one of the things that's changed is to understand that I am writing this paper and I have my own process with it and the reviews and the feedback enter into that process at different times, sometimes because I solicit them and because in the case of article reviews, right, you have to go through review, but that ultimately it's my own process. And so what's shifted for me is rather than seeing the review as a kind of assessment or a threshold, right, and I'm waiting for the reviewers I feel way engaged in a process of revision. Like often, you know, and Sarah will say this to us, and this is, you know, just standard good writing advice, like turn it in before it's ready, it's fine. <laughs> you know, like turn it in when it's 80%, that's good. It doesn't need to be 100% because everyone knows it's your first draft. But it's hard to do that. And it's hard earlier on in your writing career, I think, to let something go before you feel ready. But what's good about that, I think, is I already know that there were things I needed to work on. Like the writing is important. Um, how I write is important. The form is important. And that for me has been one of the challenges, honestly, with academic writing is I don't think a lot of academics care much about their writing. And it's sometimes it's the style of writing or the um, voice I use in writing is at odds with what's considered like social scientific writing, or, you know, you're supposed to sound a certain way. And I talk to my students about it. I tell them it's, it's kind of like, you know, writers, academics are writers, but they want to not claim that. So you know, there's a certain way, there's this particular performance with academic writing where you're supposed to sound neutral, you're supposed to sound objective, you're supposed to, you know, be disinterested in some ways in your subject. And, you know, I, I know all the reasons why that is valuable sometimes, but a lot for a lot of us, that's the de facto assumption. And so anything you do differently that, than that in writing can undermine you unless you know why you're doing it. So I think for me, it's been really claiming writing as one of the things I do both within and outside the academy so that I can actually, um, you know, in some ways, I guess I'm saying it's like to moderate your expectations of the review process and how, how much um, stock you put in that too, that it is a part of the broader process of writing. There's spaces of intervention. Um, I've been lately um, sharing a lot more work much earlier on, and that's been really good for me to build my confidence as a writer. Mm -hmm. And 
to choose my audiences wisely. So to choose who are my friendliest readers, who I know will find the kind of seed of what I'm writing that's important and reflected back to me and not give me critical feedback before I'm ready for it, for example. I think all of those audiences are also part of the review process in some ways that we don't consider. So really, in some ways, creating your own process, right, of review and revision that isn't entirely dependent on, you know, potentially defensive and negative critique as the standard bearer of feedback. Mm, I think I've been, I've been really lucky that I do think I've generally had really good editors. Some of my colleagues and friends haven't, like I can think of, I definitely know some examples of bad editing in which I think that the paper could have succeeded and didn't because of the way that the editor handled comments, sort of taking them out of proportion or not, not seeing when there was a problem with the comments. Cause you can get reviews that are just inappropriate and really the editor should handle it. They shouldn't just like send those on and not take a moment to kind of like reflect. I think in my case, I've had really good editors where they've said, you know, oh, we can see that maybe this review is a little bit, a little bit off in this or that way. So if you want to focus on these three comments, especially this one from reviewer one, and like, I think reviewer two, these things will go nicely with what reviewer one said, and then reviewer three take it as you will. <laughs> and you kind of feel like they're getting this, they're sending you this signal that like, yes, I also thought reviewer three was a little bit off. <laughs> and so you can like maybe pick a couple of the things from them that were helpful information, but then maybe if they said something that was, even if it's not inappropriate, it just was going to kind of derail the paper a little bit. You can just kind of put that to the side. So I think when I've been, a lot of the times I've been very fortunate um, with editors in that way. I also like Pavi's point of like, always being in some state of peer review um, in some ways where you're sort of thinking through, thinking through how the paper could be different or how it could be better in ways that kind of like then open you up to seeing the peer review as just like one piece of information among many. And I think that's where, I was going to say this earlier and I forgot to mention it. I think writing groups can be super helpful with that. So not with regard to this article, but especially recently I wrote my first book and I was really lucky to be in a book writing group with um, Lily Nguyen, Maya Berry and Andrew Purley and Bonnie Rixel. And Maya had brought us this strategy of starting by just reading two pages. So you bring just two pages of your writing. That's maybe a part you don't understand, or maybe it's kind of the heart of your argument and you read them out loud to your writing group and then they tell you like what's the experience of listening to you <laughs> yeah we had such wonderful editors um in this case you know both special issue editors and the handling editor which i think actually special issue editors can be really helpful and for junior scholars if you're able to publish a special issue i think it's really valuable so you're part already of a conversation um i have prior to this paper, I had published several special issues. And that was always very valuable because special issue editors can also give you, you know, even more detailed feedback in a way that's particular to the conversations you're having, um, particular to the literatures you're citing. So in this case, uh, Caroline, Jill, and Vanessa had given us such wonderful feedback, even on this incomplete draft, that I think we actually felt able to turn a paper in much more quickly than we would, you know, because the arguments still felt underdeveloped, but they really helped us to get there. And with the reviews, again, we had great reviewers, but it was a lot of feedback. I mean, it felt pretty extensive and Allison Mounts was our handling editor. And it was so wonderful to be able to like hear a concise summary <laughs> of what's really going on. So we could organize a kind of strategy for revision. And that's where I think um, handling editors in particular can be really so helpful with helping you figure out a plan for how to move forward when you feel like it's, you know, just overwhelmed with the feedback. I've kind of taken that to heart. And so now when I do editorial work, I try to offer that same strategy. And especially recently I was editing a special issue, even as an editor, I think being able to say that to someone to say, you know, you can actually disregard some parts of the review or highlighting, you know, more diplomatically <laughs> the parts that are important or valuable. I think that's such an important role for an editor to play in that particularly in academic 
publishing because it is very, it can be very cutthroat, I think. Yeah, just, and, and really it can reinforce that whole publishing process can really reinforce people's imposter syndrome, you know, especially if you're someone from a marginalized background, you don't, a lot of the students I work with, they don't feel like they belong in the academy to begin with. And they're coming in with, you know, knowledges, ways of thinking, ways of writing that are already not valued. So, you know, I feel like as their advisor or even as an editor, part of my job is to say, no, actually I see something of value and you should pursue that, but here's how you can navigate this process. And, you know, and then uh, vice versa to the, I think to reviewers to be able to say like that, that I, that your review was not, you know, it was not on point or it was undermining. I don't know if editors necessarily do that, but I feel like there needs to be some process there as well. Um, you know, there's like a accountability there that needs to happen. So I think, I think about these questions all the time because I just see people who I think are so bright and have so much knowledge and they get kind of demoralized by their um, experiences in the academy. And I just think it's, it's really important to, for all of us as like faculty or other graduate students to really think about all the ways that like gatekeeping occurs and the ways that things like peer review is a political process and the ways that we need to really like demystify all of these things. So, I mean, I think that the, the first thing that I, I tell anyone is that your experience to writing can change because I just think that people have an experience of like, it's stressful. I, I feel like I'm getting a lot of negative feedback. Like maybe I just can't. So I, I think it's so important to know that your experience to writing can really, really, really change that writing, we exalt it in the academy as though it was like a gift that came from the gods and like especially just happened that like people who are elite in society are really good at it and it's easy for them. Um, not that they like have childcare or like have leisure time or have a nice office to work in or have research assistants, like all of these things, there's like structural violences embedded in them. But that like that you're writing in a political world and the way that you write and your experience of it is political, but also that your relation to that can change. So if you have like anxiety or you feel the imposter syndrome, like I think even the terminology we use like imposter syndrome is often a reflection of people being intentionally excluded from these spaces. And then in addition, being told they need to work on their imposter syndrome. Like you need to work on your messed up academy is what needs to happen, really. But I just think it's important for folks who are out there feeling like that to know that your relationship to writing can change, that you can start out feeling like you're bad at it, but that is actually a skill like baking bread or any other things that we learn to do. We learn a language. So writing is also kind of a language that you can learn. So I think that what you need to do is pay attention to how you feel when you're writing. Like, when is it that you have a good writing day and what are the things that Kind of lead up to that and how can you recreate that? Is it a special time of day? Is it a conversation you had beforehand? Is it that you did get to eat breakfast? Like what are the things that led to you having that experience and then see how you can replicate that? I also think it's important to try to be somehow in community with other folks and if you feel shy to share your writing, maybe you can just share with folks even who don't do what you do, like oh I wrote 200 words today or this is the problem that I'm facing. And just to have those moments of connection, if possible, I think it's nice to like physically write together or like virtually on Zoom write together to have that, again, that sense of community. I think it's important to just think through how writing is tied to the state of the world and your own like affective state. So think about ways that you can feel good and enjoy writing or also sometimes use it to process like your anger and rage at the world if necessary, but sort of to not think of it as something that happens outside of your life, but think about it as kind of a living part of your life that you can intervene on and change and learn. I think um, I'm possibly saying too much, but I do think it's nice to kind of share your ideas early. Don't feel like other people know everything, but just kind of test out ideas with folks. Um, be humble, you know, don't work on something until you think it's perfect and then you share it and people find one flaw in it and you're like destroyed. That's why I think it's nice to like share little bits of pieces early on. I also have a habit of, I realized at a certain point that 
I need to write with an imagined person who's going to love it. So I will write for that. And then I will edit for the person who I think will hate it. So when you start to write and then you picture, ah, oh, my advisor hates when I say things this way, or oh, they're going to say I don't have enough evidence for this point. Like you're just going to get stuck. So just write yourself a little note, like write, oh, my advisor hates when I do this, or like whatever is the thing that's stopping you, or the peer review is going to say this. Just stop and put that person out of your head for a little while and then concentrate on the person who you are writing for. And then you can go back and you can edit for those critiques. I think it's nice to like try different genres, write with different people, just be kind of like, if you can, and I know this is like grad school is hard, especially for grad students. But if you can make your writing a little more playful and a little more pleasurable in the moments when that's possible. I love what you said, Sarah, about thinking of it as part of your life and not something that is about proving yourself to others. I mean, I think it's just a part of what you do like anything else. So there are other things that you do well, that you know you do well, that you have confidence in to try to mimic some of those strategies in writing. I think it's a really helpful thing. Um, I came from an organizing background where the work you do is much more immediate. So it's taken me a long time to say, to think about like what value can writing have when it doesn't seem to do anything. Um, even though I love reading and I see I've been changed and the world has been changed by writers, by people writing things. So for me, that part is very important that my writing is grounded in a broader political project. So for me, this paper is in part about that, um, about recognizing you know, the labor of Black women in particular in so many of the communities that are facing environmental justice and injustices, um, the work that people are doing to survive. I mean, it's mind boggling, first of all, just the amount of labor, but also the, it's mind boggling because then there's this second step in the translation to scholarship where somehow then we have to translate it into theory that seems to be like in a separate world. And so we're trying to like, you know, fit people into our existing models. And it was very important to us not to do that. So there's a way I think that both the in this paper, what we wanted to do is both the labor of Black women and Black communities that are actually doing that work of world building, remaking, that you know, so many of us kind of think about and theorize about, but also the intellectual labor of Black feminist scholars. I'd like to refer people to Cite Black Women, which is a campaign that was started by Kristen Smith, um, who's a, an anthropologist, a Black feminist scholar here at UT Austin, one of my colleagues here, um, and my supervisor actually in Women's and Gender Studies. Um, and this campaign, which asks people to think about their citational practices and to pay greater attention to them, that it's not about diversifying your uh, citations to keep up with the trend. It's really about recognizing how Black feminist scholars and Black women in general really are written out and erased, even though they're doing the work of world building, of theorizing, of organizing, of uh, caring, of really shifting the systems that we work in. And this is especially for academia in many ways. And we're seeing this happen, I think, I mean, Sarah can speak to what's happening at UNC, but we're seeing it happen in a very stark way now because um, one of the responses to Black Lives Matters has been for institutions to take up that mantle around racial justice and you know, really pervert it in a certain way to talk about diversity and inclusion, even as they are um, excluding, not supporting, undermining the Black women who are there and who have been doing this work. So I think Psych Black Women is a very important intervention because it does that work on multiple fronts. It's talking about both the institutional labor, it's talking about the intellectual labor of Black women, as well as how both of these are forms of political labor that really we all need to take on that work of transforming the academy. Yeah, I feel like Pavi said it all. I mean, I do think, I think kind of some of the same things are what I was thinking through in terms of thinking about the ways that empire isn't just external, it's not just out there, it's in our neighborhoods, it's in our school systems, it's in how people are in relationship to one another, you know, right here at home or wherever you are, how in some ways our whole world has been shaped by these imperial processes, but not to find in that a kind of defeating empire is all encompassing, but also to look for the fight like the fight is always there like the struggle that's always there and people are developing these different 
labors of like raising children, not only their own, but like raising a community's children and protecting a community's children and developing these different forms of expertise at like Pavi saying like all these different institutional sites. So like she's saying, I do see this even kind of at our own university where we're hemorrhaging Black women faculty and also the folks who are trying to like keep one another present and surviving and thriving within the academy, um, there's also that labor going on. So I guess my hopes are really just to think through the ways that we're kind of all of us engaged in certain kinds of geopolitical labors that sometimes goes unrecognized, but is important. And in particular, the ways that it's not an accident, like who ends up taking up that at work. That's a wrap for this episode of Minor Revisions. You've been listening to Pavi Vazudevan of the University of Texas at Austin and Sarah Smith of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. They were discussing their article, The Domestic Geopolitics of Racial Capitalism. The article is part of a theme issue on feminist political geographies in volume 38 of Politics and Space. The podcast is made possible with the support of Simon Fraser University's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Our theme music is by Conrad Urbaniak. Our graphic designer is Samantha Thompson. And I'm Eugene McCann. Please subscribe to Minor Revisions wherever you find your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. Write a review, share with your friends and colleagues, and consider assigning episodes to your students. Politics in Space is an international journal of critical, heterodox, and interdisciplinary research into the political and the spatial, published by SAGE. The journal's editors are Louisa Biva-Savage, University of Amsterdam, Patricia Daly, Oxford University, Alison Mounts, Wilfrid Laurier University, and Joe Painter, Durham University, and me. Find Politics in Space on the Sage Journal's website and follow it on Twitter at envplanc. That's at E-N-V-P-L-A-N-C. Thank you.